Welcome to episode 162 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast about using, learning, and sharing our passion for Linux and open source. Whether you're a beginner or master sudoer, welcome. My name is Noah, and with me today are my rocker po- What? Oh. I, I guess I told you. I told you, Michael. Linux, Michael, Ryan, and Stuart. Now, if you want to know what a rockered powered hedgehog is you can't ask me i don't know what a rocket powered hedgehog is but apparently that exists it's so sonic. let's start with it's sonic you gotta go fast right, the hedgehog you gotta go fast right, why are you right, right down with pop culture we need to figure out why your pop culture is just... I, I, i'm just not 12 years old anymore but you know that's you know that's well, just me well so, that's that's, Stuart, that's unfortunate for you hedgehog. Yeah, uh, apparently, Stuart, we're happy to have you guest hosting with us this week. For those that don't know, Stuart is a web consultant, a customer developer, and one of the hosts of the podcast Bad Voltage. We've had a whole interview with Stuart back on episode 50 of Destination Linux. So, Stuart, it's been a while since you've been on the show. What have you been up to lately? Oh, well, um, recently we've been planning the Bad Voltage live show, which happens in like two weeks. Um, nice. Other than that, you know, things. Um, I built a desktop mag- magnifier application, which ended up as part of Ubuntu Mate and Budgie and a couple of other things. Accessibility tools, so you can zoom in on um, nice. different bits of things, magnify bits of the desktop. And then it turned out that designers really like it to look at um, small details of things like the curves on the corners of your windows and stuff like that. So that was fun. That's very cool. Very cool. Ryan, what, uh, what's new in your world? Well, I'm very excited. We got the latest Hardware Addicts episode out. And awesome. so if you haven't checked out that podcast, check out Hardware Addicts. If you love hardware, you're a hardware geek like us. And I have a new monitor here, and I have it in the vertical position. And I talk about it a little more on Hardware Addicts. So I've not done the horizontal vertical monitor setup before. And all the geeky things that I've done, I've not had that. So this is the first time I've set it up. I absolutely love it. It's something that Michael actually had set up, and it was a way for me personally to conserve desk space on my desktop. But uh, both of my monitors so are now 2K. Both of my monitors run over the 60 hertz, and the only desktop environment that allowed me to set up everything without flickering and issues, because again, they're over 60 hertz, 144 hertz monitors, was Plasma. So I... I am back on <laughs> Plasma. Um, I tried fantastic. Cinnamon. I tried uh, XFCE, which, of course, is my favorite. And in all of them, once you went over 60 hertz, flicker, 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 half your screen. I don't know if it's the compositor they use or whatever. But in either case, if you're having a similar issue, Plasma may be your answer. And I guess you win, Noah and Michael. Fine. Yeah. I'm on Plasma. Good. You know what? This is this is a great week for that, Ryan, because uh on Tuesday I the it was a pre-record, but the episode of Ask No, we covered uh KDE and Plasma setup and went through tips and tricks of exactly what people can do um to get the most out of their plasma KDE desktop and why I personally think it's the best top desktop ever, which you have now come to learn as well. So I think this is a really I great week. go that far. I mean the that's basically best what you said. So I'm good. really glad that you finally admit that really no desktop ever superior or even really close to the KDE plasma experience. It's good that you finally Stuart, help me out here. This is ridiculous talk. Stuart, help oh, Ryan understand that plasma is the best desktop ever. That's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, <laughs> honestly, I keep yeah, being told, I keep I being told that I should try this stuff. Um, that I should, I should try KDE, and I'm kind of tempted, but I, I don't fiddle around with my desktop very much because I have. Yeah. It has to work because I have to yeah, do work yeah. using my desktop. I, I, 
I said the same thing. And then after an ohm crash for the last time I switched to KDE and uh, haven't restarted my computer, much less uh, reinstalled my operating system since. So it's been kind of a good time. No, I, I believe that. I mean, I'm a Mate guy. So yeah, Mate's good. Mate's good. Mate <laughs> is. Mate, the thing about, I, I, I would describe Mate as being the desktop environment that has a, a very similar stability component as KDE. I would say that the difference there is there isn't as many bells and whistles and levers to pull in Mate as there is in KDE. Um, yeah. And so it only comes down to what do I want bells and whistles for? Uh, to my make bells and whistles launching sound. applications. The yeah, but what happens? I care about. Yeah, but what happens when the application launcher hangs up for a second? Do you have a backup application launcher and maybe a third backup application launcher? Could, you're, could you're you kinda, you're kind of you're yeah you're <laughs> as a plasma fan you're kind of making me not on your side. <laughs> I'm just, saying, I'm just saying, I got three different ways to launch an application. If something doesn't work, I've got a backup. I suppose, but uh, so I do. I do love Plasma. And I think it is great that people are finally actually giving it a chance, and you know, Ryan is seeing the the value of it being able. To, that that's one of the reasons I use it is because of the vertical monitor thing, and uh, I think that that is a valid point. That it is overwhelming. That Stuart said that you know, there's a lot of stuff that you. If you're a tinkerer, it's great, and the default approach to it is not necessarily the best best on most distributions but if you are interested in checking out plasma steward at any point i would say check out the latest versions of kubuntu starting from 1804 and then because mm-hmm. that they yeah. they they have modified a lot of stuff that has taken out the ridiculous and made it more sane go so, archer go home uh, get, uh, first of all given those two choices i'd go home every day and twice <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was so excited to have you on, Stuart, but now I'm second guessing myself. <laughs> no, second, I'm not. secondly, I already am home. Check it out. So no arch. <laughs> Thirdly, um, it doesn't surprise me that you aren't arch because look, you told me about it. Would you believe it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I am. It's something that I'd like to play with, and I probably would use Kubuntu because you know I'm an Ubuntu guy. So it's kind of on the list to do, but I don't really have a sacrificial computer to put it on. And I, like I say, I don't want to fiddle with my actual desktop. That's um, fair. I mean, it's, it's it's probably not a good idea on your part, but it's fair. Yeah, switching to ease is a big is a big thing to do. Yeah, I I, I wish um, there was a kind of a promise in the old days of Ubuntu that the desktops would come with a desktop package, so you could just install Kubuntu desktop from uh software center and then it would bring in the whole desktop and you'd be able to switch in between them never really worked yeah by, um, by the way on arch i could switch desktops all the time by the way i use arch if anybody's wondering <laughs> <laughs> okay well you know i'm not moving now to say in my way but <laughs> just it's kind of a non-stop thing with him we just kind of have to tolerate it michael what's new in your world this week well i've been uh just doing a lot of stuff for my setup for my uh my preparation for distro hopping, as I said last week, I was going to be doing that and I haven't done that yet, but it is happening somewhat. I am, I'm, I'm on the verge of the hopping. It's very close. And I'm really happy about the, the, the new structure I have where I can now not have to worry about uh, all of the, you know, worrying about different dual booting for, you know, having a OneDrive, worrying about where Grub is or worrying about like what the setups for the different partitions are and stuff like that. Because I set up my FlexiDoc to have multiple drives that are one for the system, one for data, one for like games, 
and a bunch of other stuff separated to make it easy for me to swap out uh, systems very quickly. And it's just it's just been fun that, you know, setting it up actually has been fun. And I can't wait to it. I've actually got a Solus, OpenSUSE, Manjaro, and the latest Kubuntu beta uh, ready to go for the testing. So I just got to finish up the, you know, the last few bits and pieces to get ready. And uh, next week, I will have a brand new system that uh, will be hopefully, you know, up to date and have rolling packages and something. I love all those options that you name there as distros you're going to try out because I think they all have some fantastic things in them, but you need to add MX back in there. That's what I've been playing with this week. And you know, one of the things that makes me love MX so much if other developers of distros are listening here, during the installation process in MX, there is a separate screen completely dedicated to where do you want to install Grub or whether you want to install it at all. And instead of having a flexi dock where you're so worried you're going to overwrite Grub with installing a distro, <laughs> MX just makes it really simple because then I could say, yes, I want you to install Grub or no, and here's where I want to put it. Other distros, you either have to manually set up your partitions to do that or other things. It's just everyone needs to copy that. That is something everyone needs, a separate Grub screen so people yep. can distro hop. Yeah, yep. I mean, that's a good 100%. point. To be fair, yes, the reason I got the flexi dog was so I could be lazy and just have multiple systems. Where we I know. Could just, yeah, okay. Yeah, sure. you didn't have to tell us that part. But uh, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. But to, to be clear, the only reason the MX is not on the list is because there's not a plasma edition. And if there was, it absolutely would be. And it still might be just on the principle of giving it a shot anyway. You should because it's XFCE, which is superior. Noah, what have you been up to this week? We've made some really good progress on uh, on the Linux Delta Wiki. So I we opened it up to the community um, last week, uh, well, a uh, week ago uh, on on Ask Noah, and uh, just said, hey, if you if anybody has some ideas or anybody has things that you know they have gone through, uh, let us know. And so you know, each morning I log in, and it's kind of fun to watch these. Uh, these things trickle down. We've had people how to remove the grub timeout, how to set up OpenShift with Libvirt on your laptop. You know, a, a lot of things that people that work in industry and work for the companies that even design some of these projects or work on some of these projects are now uh, taking those things and saying, I would know exactly how to set that thing up because I'm the guy that worked on that. And so, and they're contributing those articles into the wiki. And of course, it's kind of a slow process to get them organized and stuff. But if, of course, if you go there, you can always click on recent changes and see just what the latest things that people um, have have done. So, the, so the the next iteration and the thing that we're working on next is we are uh, working on scaling out the backend infrastructure and so that we can handle uh, media files. And so you'll be able to upload resource files, um, either source files or images or diagrams and, and stuff like that, which will, of course, make the guides that much more smooth and, and that much more apparent and, and readily accessible to people. So overall, it's, it's, you know, it's, there's a lot of work that goes into it, but I'm very thankful for the community for ste- stepping up and, and doing that. Of course, if people want to do that, they can go to wiki.linuxdelta.com. And, uh, and the nice thing, I've had a couple of people say, well, how do I create a wiki? And so we're working on um, the how-to page to create the, nice. you know, a new page. But the, the answer really is just replace main page in the URL with whatever the title that you want your, the title of your how-to guide to be or whatever it is you're documenting. Um, and it will just create that. It'll say, hey, no page exists. Would you like to create it? You click create, and now you can create that page and save it. And it's very si- simple and straightforward. And why are you in the studio today, more importantly? Because yeah, you didn't well, cover that part. 
Yeah, so you and I are recording the next episode of the School of Hard Knocks, and we have a number. We took a break in January because we had to. We had some interesting recording schedules to work around, um, and so coming out in the next few weeks is going to be an a, a absolutely heart wrenching, cool. Uh, it's, it has a happy ending um, story about a guy who searched for his birth parents and found them and the amazing relationship that he built with them after finding them using 23andMe. Um, he's a software developer and used technology to track down uh, his birth parents having been adopted his whole life. And he has two parents and the, the story is just incredible. It's just absolutely outstanding. Um, and so that episode is coming out. We also have a episode on parenting. Um, we had a chance to sit down with some people that had uh, one person who grew up in a very wealthy home and, and and didn't understand why she was treated differently because she grew up in such a wealthy home. And then an interview with a gentleman who uh, bounced from home to home and never really had a, a, a solid home and now wants to create that for his kids. Um, and so listening to those stories and exploring people like that have been absolute, it's just been it's just been a trip. I, I've really enjoyed it. And so today, after we're done recording uh, Destination Linux, Ryan, you and I are going to sit down. We're going to talk about leadership. And so everybody who works for a company should listen to this episode. Or, or if you own a company, you should listen to this episode. And here's why. People don't quit jobs. People quit bosses. People don't quit jobs. People quit leaders. And so understanding how to be the kind of leader that people want to be loyal to, stay for, and, and work for, and build a career for is an important thing to know and understanding from the other side what to look for in a leader and when you should look to move on or ways that you can deal with conflict and deal with problematic problematic relationships with leaders. All of those things we're going to talk about and we're going to cover them. Um, and again, it's going to be one of those stories where we in-depthly explore uh, people and people's life stories because they're interesting. People are interesting. Yep. This episode of Destination Linux and the entire DLN network is sponsored by... DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easier with their intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. Now, you can get all this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. Or you can use their flexible pricing structure and get it as low as 0.7 cents per hour. As Ryan would say, that's darn near free. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software languages and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean with two months free by using a $100 credit that we're going to give you by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, that URL is do.co slash DLN. Using that URL, you, <laughs> URL lets DigitalOcean know that you appreciate them supporting the Destination Linux show and the Destination Linux network. So get the free $100 credit. It's like a triple win. Get the $100 credit. It's like a quadruple win. Get the $100 credit. Get servers that you wouldn't have ordinarily had on their amazing dashboard and super fast scalable network and systems and support the Destination Linux crew all by going to do.co slash DLN. It doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get any easier than that. And a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. It's like your four times quad champion if That's you support right. DigitalOcean. I love it. Yes. We'd like to welcome back Ike to Destination Linux. Ike has been on the show on episode 8, 19, and 35. For those who might not be aware, Ike is a software engineer and the CEO of Lispy Snake. Now, Lispy Snake is an open source software company focused on making indie games and developing indie game 
frameworks. Now, you've been involved in many big projects, many open source projects over the year, including Clear Linux and Solus. So we'll start with this, Ike. What made you decide to take on game development? It's something I've always been fascinated with over the years, and I think it's more fascination with the older games that made me appreciate game development. When you look back at something for like the Nintendo Entertainment System or even the Amstrad CPC, you see the creativity coming out in working within limitations. And that's something that's always strongly appealed to me. Um, they had less that they could use, and yet they got more out of it than you would find from a game today. Uh, more story, more depth, uh, as opposed to just you know visuals and bling. And I think that's sort of what attracted me to game development in the first place. That's interesting because I noticed as a gamer, as the AAA games have kind of, you know, the big studios have dominated in the AAA game arena and they're all merging and making these giant studios and things. A lot of the appeal and fun of games has gone away with it. Like it's almost like half the game you're watching movies where they're trying to establish the story versus in indie games. A lot of times you're playing the story, you're, you're developing it as you go is that something that i don't know if you were a hardcore gamer before or not that you notice with the AAA games of disappointment like what i experienced with them and that's kind of what led me to go towards the indie games because it brought back that nostalgia of exploring yeah i mean a lot of AAA games have come out in the last few years i know one specific example that i won't name that you're talking about which is almost entirely video Yep. Um, it's more like you're watching a television series than playing a game. And it feels like your decisions have no real consequence in those worlds. And that's not something I'm really okay with. Uh, one of my favorite games of all time, even though it's not 2D, would probably be Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. And that probably yes. resonates with a lot of people. So, you know, that's sort of the gaming world that I come from. Uh, even to this day, I would sooner download something like Project 64 and then play some old N64 games than I would the newer games because they had far more content and playability. I remember when I first played um, Zelda, I think it took me six months to complete the game. And then you fast forward a few years and you can have a game finished within a few hours. So, you know, I'm, I'm more old school in my approach. Yeah, yeah, I like that approach. Um, there's uh, Retro styles are coming back like with the cell shading and all the other stuff where you're kind of taking the modern style and bringing it back to the older style. And I think that's just uh, a really cool thing that people are doing. And something that you're doing is really interesting is that you're also developing your own game framework called Serpent. What are the limitations in the existing like game frameworks that currently you have options for that made you want to create your own? Okay, so first of all, we had to sort of filter by what's open source and you know what we can use. I'm not saying you can't use closed source stuff. That's not really a debate that I want to have. Um, I'm sure people can crucify me on Reddit later on for not advocating <laughs> one way or the other. But, you know, I personally, I don't give up. Um, so the open source options are kind of limited and it almost feels like everyone wants to imitate Unity. Um, yeah. Unity is great and all, but it does have a lot of problems on Linux. Let's be straight about it. If you look at some of my previous projects, it, they specifically focused on fixing issues with Unity on Linux. Um, and it's, it's called source. So there's nothing you're going to do about it. Um, for me, again, it comes from the old school perspe uh, perspective. I don't really like IDEs. I don't like a text editor telling me how I should be building something. I especially hate anything that's drag and drop and, hey, you don't need to code. I want to feel like I've created the game. 
Not like I've just dragged and dropped a couple of levels together because really I'm just repackaging somebody else's game. There's only so much originality that can be there. It's still their core engine. It's their core beliefs. You know, there's only so much you can go with it. That's why not to slag them off. But if you look at nearly every game maker game in the world, you know, it's a game maker game. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted something that, you know, again, is part of my philosophy. I don't want it to be in my way. I want it to do the stuff that I want it to do. I don't want, the high overhead of a scripting language because uh, a lot of the industry has moved towards basically punishing the developers and making them implement features that they shouldn't do because they're giving up in terms of giving everything to the level designers. So a lot of the work that's gone into it is like, hey, let's make this a highly scriptable blah, blah, blah. And you know that's just because they want the level designers to be able to drag, drop, drag, drop, drag, drop, do this, do that, and completely bend all the rules of the engine. I just wanted, you know, a very, very simple library where it was very quick to make a, an indie game, as it were, with minimal effort. So I wanted to be able to draw sprites. I wanted access to shaders. That's when it started getting problematic because the first thing is, okay, I can't reinvent things because people are going to kill me. People in Linux don't like reinventing. <laughs> we don't do this. So the obvious answer, as everyone would say, use SDL. I used SDL. You see, I used to see. It's very, very cross-platform. And then there's the obvious case of you're going to target more than one platform. So you can't just use SDL because you've got to use then SDL and OpenGL or Vulkan or write pipelines for both. And at that point, you're going... And that's kind of how the first effort went. Uh, we created something called Lispy Snake 2D. I know, original. Uh, I want to run an IRC client called Dave. <laughs> anyway, um, went down that path, did it with C, SDL, using SDL renderer, and it was good. We could get sprites, we could get tile maps, the usual stuff you get. And then you think to yourself, wouldn't it be cool if we could have little particle effects and a little bit of, you know, like a little bit of a jitter going on, shake the camera, and you go, oh crap, that's all 3D stuff. And I've just implemented everything using pure 2D. You're not mixing the both of them, so you're having to use OpenGL or Vulkan. Or... So I did some research around, and I come across BDFX which is the library we're using for basically abstracting the platform away. It can speak Vulkan, it can speak OpenGL, it can speak Metal, it can speak DirectX. You know, you speak to it in one way and it emits the right instruction. It's the simplest way to look at it. So that's allowed me to get the portability that I need for what I want to do. And what you're doing with this is you're releasing this right now as open source as is as well. So all the work you're doing is now out there for other game developers, people who want to get into game development to use freely. No cost, no licenses, nothing. Yeah. And that's just, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the main value out of what we're doing. Yeah. I just think that's amazing. I mean, if you look into game design and even the drag and drop options, they are very expensive. These engines and game development and it, the capability of using them, especially a lot of them are free right up until you start going commercial when you decide you're going to launch your game on Steam or something else. Then they start pulling these massive profits away from you for utilizing that game engine. And here you are developing this stuff and, and doing what, well, you've done for years with distros and other things is giving it back to the community. And I just think that's awesome. So I mean, a lot of people have sort of made the remark of why don't you use Godot? And I think it's the obvious question. Why not Godot? Godot is great. And it's, you know, and it's, in what it does, but it's very IDE-ish. It's got its own custom languages, and that's an advantage to everyone who uses it. But to me, there's something that put me off. You know, I want something where I can literally bang out the code, 
whack my assets in and say, well, I want to load this picture here. That's a sprite. Then I want to move it. But on top of that, I also want a very powerful architecture behind it because we all get jealous sometimes when we read up on these, uh, say like the Destiny talk, um, their renderer API. You look at it and then you see these massive diagrams and you go, oh, wow, I can never have this. <laughs> I can literally <laughs> never have this. I can have maybe Pygame, you know, and that's about all you're getting. So you mentioned, Ike, that you don't typically utilize IDEs, but I think someone like yourself who obviously is a developer, an advanced coder, you've done extremely advanced things with the code that you write. People want to know who are interested in getting into uh, to coding, maybe getting into game development, the type of software that you do use to set everything up. So what distro do you use? What software do you have to have set up when you're deciding you're going to work on a project like this? Um, for me, at the moment, I use Solus as my distro because I want access to a newer stack. Uh, you're targeting rendering API, so you kind of want to be on the bleeding edge of Mazelib. So you want the latest OpenGL, you want the latest Vulkan. In the opposite to pretty much everyone, I'm not doing this on NVIDIA. Um, I think if you you want to target NVIDIA, do it afterwards. That's when you start rolling on the extra effects into your pipeline. But if you start the other way around, nobody with Intel graphics is ever going to benefit from your game. And that's a problem we see with so yeah. many games. Look at when Purple Space Program finally left the beta program. All of a sudden, you couldn't run it on an Intel laptop because it was specific to NVIDIA shaders. And that really, really irked me because I love that game. And I was in it from early access, helped them fix various upstream issues with Mudder. So that really bugged me. So my setup is just, you know, a simple Intel UHD graphics. Uh, Genie is my text editor. And I use whatever terminal is default. I don't know. Uh, I'm not a Vim guy. I use Nano. Um, but Genie for writing any actual code. Use Git, obviously, it, you know, small changes and often. And then make sure you have them mirrored somewhere. So just put them on your own private GitHub uh, just so you don't lose them. Use the DLang compiler, but I'm using LDC for that because it's backed by LLVM. Other nice. than that, making sure you test all your code with various compilers. So if you're doing C code, make sure to use Clang and as well as GCC. Because the, the more targets you have for your code, the more bugs you're going to expose. And those bugs are invariably designed for or somewhere you've just made an assumption that doesn't happen to be true you know we've all done it it's not a criticism so testing as many things as you can really but if you develop on linux you're gonna have less buggy code yeah and i love that you're kind of targeting intel there because now you're going to reach everybody essentially with your game instead of just a subset of people that have some super high-end video card or things like that i also want to touch on a point you made about NVIDIA specifically. So a lot of times when uh, I'm a big Intel or AMD fan because obviously they open source a lot of the drivers directly into the kernel versus having proprietary driver layer on top, although NVIDIA is supposedly working on that. But one of the things when people are doing benchmarks on games is these games are optimized specifically for a video card. AMD does it, NVIDIA does it, they all have it. And because of that, people are like, hey, look at this, on my this AMD card, I'm only getting 80 frames per second. With my NVIDIA card, I'm getting 110. Clearly the NVIDIA card's superior in this case and uh, beats out everything. But the reality is I think what you touched on, a lot of people don't understand that a lot of video games are, they're, they're kind of, I don't know if they're bought or NVIDIA pays them or, or AMD pays them or what, but they're optimized for a specific video card. And that's going to have a big impact on the experience you have with the game, even if you've got the proper hardware to run it. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, looking at the uh, the screenshots and so on that you've posted so far, it's all quite pixel arty, right? Probably shouldn't need the latest NVIDIA graphics card to do this. No, um, but the the way that the framework works is it's not actually 2D. It's making 2D accessible with a 3D pipeline. Yeah. Uh, so internally, it might be using OpenGL or it might be using Vulkan and it's using shaders to do that. But there, you are going to want special effects, not necessarily us as much there are going to be particle systems running on the gpu which is you know far more efficient than it's going to be on the cpu there, there is some stuff that we do like um to make sure we can draw a lot of stuff very very quickly uh something called sprite batching interestingly good just got that upstream the other day and get the idea is to try and draw as many of the same texture at the same time because if you try and draw a load of pictures every time you change the texture kind of irritate the gpu because it's costly to do like a, a rebind of a texture. So doing all that stuff very, very efficiently is kind of needed. If you look back at some of the earlier screenshots when we started with this, uh, one of the more complex tiles maps that we was using, which was 16 pixel by 16 pixel, and it was it was absolutely massive, this map. Uh, we could barely get about 40 frames a second, and that was, I think, over 6,000 draw calls every single second. So we optimized that down, I think, to about, two or three um, draw calls for literally the entire scene. And that can scream along at a few hundred frames per second, even on Intel. Or, you know, cap it to V-Sync at 60 frames per second. Everything we've done is independent of frame rate. But, so, yeah, they're, even though 3D doesn't seem important, graphics cards aren't optimized anymore for 2D. They're optimized for 3D. So doing 3D, 2D in the right way is kind of where it's at. You've seen, like, um, Return of the Oprah Den. Where it's actually uh, it's all it's pure black and white, just um, one bit graphics, but it's all fully three D rendered and then rendered out in that fashion. Yeah, I mean, so if you look at one of some of the screenshots we've done recently, um, you're having to collect everything that needs to be visible for that scene. Then you're going to have to sort them by their Z depth or Z depth for American yeah. users, um, because if you <laughs> don't, then it's not going to blend the pictures in the correct order. So you can end up with black regions where I didn't know what the picture was going to be behind. And on top of that, you've, um, you've got to swap by texture as well. So you've got to minimize how many times you swap your texture and you've got to draw them in the right order based on your layering approach. So the, with the way that we've done it now with Serpent, you can actually have players walk behind tiles within the tile map. So you could have a tile, a couple of sets of tiles that would be a tree. But it also makes sure the alpha blending works properly so they could walk behind the tree. It's up to you to implement the physics part of that, but uh, internally, I think there's 0.2 difference between every single layer in a tile map. I think it's so interesting to think about all of the details there of something as simple as walking behind a tree that you have mm. to go into as a game developer, that is a game player a lot of times, especially before, like I said, my brother started creating games and I started understanding and talking with him all that goes into making a game. I would just sit there and play it and not really pay much mm. attention to it. But now when I play a game, yeah. after having, you know, been involved in that at least a little bit, it just it's a whole new appreciation for all these little things we take for granted are massive right. undertakings by the coders themselves that develop it. And I think that if you uh, are a somebody who loves games, think about taking a new appreciation and really looking at the landscapes and things, because that's what changed for me in playing games. Like I said, when I started having those conversations and understanding is I'll stop and look around the game and just take it in. Like, man, somebody drew all of this. They made all of these pieces uh, of art here on this page that everybody else just runs by to get to the next stage. But it's quite an amazing undertaking. 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at the stuff I've been doing for the last, I think, five, six days on Twitter, um, one of the most basic parts of the code base was the initial entity component system. Uh, it, it's a common pattern in all games. You've probably heard of it anyway. Instead of being object-orientated and you know uh, an object inheriting from another object, it's through composition. So every entity is something that may potentially be on screen and it's built up a component. So you might have velocity, speed, health, you know, you might have all of these things. Um, the initial version we done was kind of bad. Uh, in <laughs> just to uh, help with prototyping, um, the actual limit with that is about five hundred entities on screen at any one time, which is probably okay for most games, but nowhere near good enough for us. Because for the demo that I'm putting out soon, part of that involves ending the scene torturously by thousands of bugs flying past and your chances of winning the demo are deliberately screwed um so it needs to be able to support that so i've been redoing the entity component system for the last week it's modeled on other designs that are out there and basically you have this concept of archetypes which are similar buckets of all of these things have the same component that optimizes uh read queries every frame give me something with a sprite and a position because it has to do that every single frame to be able to draw it so it's optimized for read uh, allocating similar pages in 16 kilobyte chunks, which means on the L1 cache you can pull in four at any one time because you get 64 kilobyte uh, L1 cache. We don't really use more than four components at a time in any one of our queries, so that's imperfect, uh, which means all of that has been absolutely torture for the last week and means literally nothing to most normal people. But it means whoever then uses Serpent or plays our games even if on a simpler system, they can quite easily have thousands upon thousands of entities on screen. And doing that in an indie game with open source tools is really, 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 really difficult because you have so much to rebuild yourself. Like, I didn't have really any options out there. So I'm hopeful that that comes in for people that then use Serpent to build their games. That's that they'll awesome. have AAA features in an open source toolkit. So I just want everyone to know when I play this game, the demo live on my stream and I die at the end, it was made that way. It's not just because I suck. There you go. <laughs> not, not solely because you suck. Uh, yeah, not solely because I suck. In, entirely possible that both things are true at once. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was very mean of me. I do apologize. Stuart, no, <laughs> you're not wrong. I, I had a slightly separate question, enough graphics nerdery for now. One of the things that stands out, if you look at the about page of Lispy Snake, is it says, our framework and titles put Linux first instead of being a second-class citizen. And this sort of, you know, pro-Linux stance, or even admitting that Linux exists, you don't see it very often from game studios. So what made you decide to do that? I think a part of it is us Linux users are vastly underrepresented in official and unofficial statistics. And apart from you know, the vocal minority. I am a Linux user. Always been a Linux user, uh, except for when I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> Naturally. Naturally. But um, yeah, it's, I use it, you know, I think it's great for, uh, for gaming. And I think most of the Linux builds of games I've ever played have kind of been an export option from Unity or UE4. Yeah. For the most part. It's only really a couple of source games that work really well and then everything else seems to have quite a lot of bugs unless it was even Allegro. Uh, you don't really see that apart from Factorio. Now Factorio I believe is Allegro and a lot of custom work into that and that is like even from a technical level is a 
brilliant piece of engineering that game, given how much it has to do. Apart from that, nobody really targets Linux, and you always feel like a second-class citizen when you're playing a game, even though you've paid for it. And now everyone says, eh, Proton. Everyone's given up. Like, this is back to the, oh, yeah, use Linux because we have wine. It's just going backwards. It's not going forwards. It's not encouraging people to target Linux. It's just wrapping more compatibility layers around it. And even for the Linux first titles, I got so tired that I stopped playing games uh, when I created the Linux Steam integration project. I got so tired of Linux games being of a, a subpar quality in terms of their build. I just gave up on gaming for a, a good long while. So it's those frustrations that led me to think, well, maybe we should go Linux first. And if we can get it work on Linux, then worry about portability with less standard systems. I just think that's amazing. When, you know, obviously you're creating a game, I'm going to buy it when it comes out. But when I saw and I was reading up on your company as you were developing it, it was a whole different level to me of what it meant to see what you were doing. Because you're right, Linux is a second class citizen in so many people's eyes. And I do see a lot of giving up. And people just kind of falling back on, well, you know, just kind of use Linux and Windows or, you know, if the game ports over and it kind of works great, if it doesn't, you know, the community out there, go support yourself, figure it out, go find some wine setting that works to make it work or whatever if you want, but we're not going to officially support it. And it's depressing, frankly, in a lot of ways, because Linux is a perfectly viable gaming platform that people tend to just ignore. And then people are always listening to excuses from certain individuals who are always bad mouthing Linux. Just so I understand this, though, um, you're saying Linux is a first-class citizen, not the first-class citizen, right? You're still doing a Windows port of your games and so on, right? Yeah. Right, okay, cool. Uh, like, let, me, let me ask you this. You, you've worked on so many different projects for so many different organizations with so many different requirements. I mean, you've had a first-class seat why it is certain companies make the decisions they make and why we on the Linux desktop get the results that we get. So my question to you is this, what is still missing from the Linux desktop experience that holds it back from mass adoption? Um, in a nutshell, start pushing for technical excellence instead of marketing. Do you think it has anything? I mean, d- does it relate to the... You know, the ease of accessibility, if I walk into Best Buy, I can walk out with a MacBook or I I can walk out with a Surface, you know, and any of the manufacturers, Dell, HP, so on and so forth, they're all going to provide me a laptop that delivers a suitable experience with Windows pre-installed, Mac pre-installed, whatever. That option doesn't exist for for many people. Does that play a role? Or do you think if if we solve the technical problems on the back end and we pushed for technical excellence the marketability would follow. Is that what you're trying to say? Uh, well, this is the thing. Is, um, the technical solutions already exist, but there's too many of them. And I don't mean in there there's too many distros because I do believe competition, cooperation are very mm-hmm. important. But I mean, if we look at a more specific example and people can hate on me for all they like here, from my own experiences over the last couple of years, Snap and Flatpak, right? Flatpak is literally very, very good. It is the technologically superior option. Unfortunately, nobody's putting the cash in to market Flatpak. Now, if Flatpak was marketed in the same way the Snap was marketed, then it would be viewed by all as the superior option. It's literally a VHS and Betamax issue again. Betamax was the superior option. VHS was viewed as a deeper, more accessible option, so everyone went for it. Snap, now... 
I'm not knocking Snap because it's come along a long way, but it is still technologically inferior to Flatpak, and there should be a unified effort from the major distros on one format. And you can see that across a whole spectrum of issues. It's more focused on marketing, and we're the greatest guys. We're the best guys. They don't have this, and we have that. If there was more of a strive towards achieving common technical goals instead of trying to market each other into oblivion, then I think we would have had mass adoption years ago. In your opinion, what makes snap packages inferior to flat packs? Why are flat packs the technologically superior solution? They've been considered from the start. They've been designed from the start. Snap is at a point now where it's been designed by committee. New features are bolted on as a way of fixing previous bugs, and they're undocumented unless you search through the Snap forums. The Snapcraft documentation online still doesn't match the usage of the, the command line tool and even down to the format itself creating new packages and on top of that you've still got to go through a review process that's not transparent whereas Flatpak you have the option of testing it and hosting it yourself Ubuntu you're locked to Ubuntu with Snap uh, even though there is support for other OSs that's never really emerged uh, it just feels everything is put on post haste and with Flatpak it feels like everything has emerged as a consistent design uh, even in terms of the API working with Snap, it's not consistent. Uh, it was never designed for metadata, in such as the app info files that we see in, you know, like from the Fedora guys. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. it's been there for a long time. Nearly every software center in the world supports it. Somehow, Snap is designed without that in mind. So to counteract that issue, at build time, they extract, they extract the metadata, only the parts they want to override their custom YAML keys to be emitted in the Snap. Now, that still completely breaks translations, and it's not uh, an indexable format used by software centers. So everyone's having to work around all these design inconsistencies and bolt-ons. I mean, that's just my personal view of it. They're still tacking on the original design issues. Flatpak, yeah, personally, I did slag it off at first because it just wasn't anywhere near the way it is now. The way Flatpak is now, it should just be the standard option for everyone, and everyone should be fighting to support that. But it doesn't have the marketing budget. Nobody is putting out adverts saying, you know, just flat like it. You know, so. <laughs> that's, that's, that's fast. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you for that explanation. I really appreciate it. I learned something today. Well, before we move on, um, I, 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 you said, you said um, people are welcome to hate you for it. So I, I, I think I might avail yeah. myself of that opportunity. Um, <laughs> more importantly, some of what you say, I think there is the truth. And I have no real dog in this fight. I don't particularly care which one ends up dominant. But I think a reasonable proportion of what you said there is as much a myth as the fact that Betamax was better when it wasn't. The whole idea that Betamax was the technically superior option that got killed, actually rubbish. And this is kind of the same thing, I think. So snaps, for example, are not just for desktop applications. So just so I think that a lot of the stuff that you'll say, well, why doesn't it do this? Um, why Snap's different is because they're serving a slightly different use case. Now, I mean, I don't want to turn this into a Snap versus Flatpak war or anything, but I feel I'm like my going, here's a whole bunch of problems with Snaps. Flatpaks are just great, and then we just move on. But- seemed a bit fair. Where I, what, what I took from, from Ike's explanation and, and, and the way that I think that, that discussion has to be framed if we're to have it honestly is this, you know, 
we can go ahead and have opinions on if Betamax or VHS was better, right? But one had 200 and whatever it was, 70 lines of resolution, and one had 240 lines of resolution. And so the image quality on Betamax was a higher quality image than the image quality on VHS. And Betamax recorders could only record 60 minutes. So you couldn't put a whole film on them. Sure. Let's have a fantastic quality half a film. That's why it lost. Yes, but eventually we would have gotten, I think the upper limit was four hours or whatever. We shouldn't debate Betamax versus VHS, but I think the upper limit eventually reached four hours, whereas the T210 cassette was 12 hours and so so on and so forth. But as it relates to, as it relates to snap packs and and flat packs, what what I'd be interested, I would very much be interested in the opposite side of, so for example, Ike's, you know, assertion that a lot of the documentation that is, that is, that is provided by Canonical um, doesn't necessarily match up with, with, with how the with how the packaging works and also there is no option for self-hosting snap packages something that is not just his concern but is something i've brought up on on ask noah before too it is concerning that canonical owns that store and you know and and yeah i understand that their position is well you anybody could go spin up their own secondary store and i I get that but it's not really designed for that and so I, I think those are I think those are real criticisms that should be addressed point by point, not just. Yeah. So I, I completely agree with you that there should be the possibility of having more snap stores than just canonical. I 100% agree with that. I think it's a big downside with the way they're doing it. The documentation stuff. I don't know whether I, you've run into different corner cases than the one than the ones I've run into, or maybe the documentation's been updated since you looked at it, or maybe I've just missed it and it is largely this yesterday and the documentation right, okay. doesn't match. Okay, nope. Then fair. I mean I've not personally run into that, but I'm certainly not saying it's yeah, not the case. Um I forget the exact name of the plugin, but there's I think it's dump. Uh, all the documentation for the dump plugin doesn't actually correlate. Um the usage of URI schemes is not documented. Cool. We should, fo- we should file a bug about that or our mode of in the context of the desktop because I don't care about the server. This, you know, I'm uh, yeah. framing it from my perspective is I need something for desktop and in terms of what's appropriate, something that can correctly sandbox, update itself and, you know, be managed as a proper lifetime. That's something that I need, something that's accessible as a developer as well. When it comes to Snap, it's not accessible to me. I can't, without great effort, and great workarounds and hacking away, get something simple to build. Whereas with Flatpak, the documentation's yeah. there and within a few minutes I can. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. But that's a different thing from what you were saying before. I totally agree. It's not suitable for your use no, cases. Not what you need to do. What I said before. I'm just saying this is the context where I'm coming from, but there's still, still both applicable. What I wanted to do was not just have the discussion go on. Because everyone's kind of nodding and going, yeah, Flatpak's just loads better. That doesn't even need discussing. Well, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that flat packs are necessarily that better. I don't like the fact that I have to install a 1.4 gigs of data just to get one application to run. Like there's there's various different things about flat pack that are annoying and there's various different things about snaps that are annoying, like the whole store being locked to one thing. But there's, you know, there's all of them have a pros and cons list that, you know, you really, it's really it's just well, an we've unfortunate been on thing. the show before we have gone through this, right? I've made the case and, and, and in a lot of ways, I feel like you, Ike, sometimes I take that side that's not popular and I get a lot of flack for it on social media constantly of, well, you didn't take the popular side, but it, and it's not fun to go on to 
podcast and that that you know reaches thousands of listeners and say that and then you get that feedback because everybody wants to well no no i heard so and so say it so therefore it's got to be true that snaps the superior thing and blah 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 i you know in in my opinion i think if you take this back to the context where this started what ike was saying and the reason why i nodded my head is we need to pick a path and stop having everybody go out there and just keep creating new paths. And in fact, I think it wasn't more than one or two episodes where I brought this up to you, Noah and Michael, that I feel like universal packaging is now becoming just like all the other packaging. We've got all these solutions out here and we're telling developers, hey, we're going to create one solution so you can use it on all distros in Linux and you don't have to write your software for 50 different distros. And now we're going to create 50 different universal packages that you can use as well. And the original one, as I understand it, was App Images. That was yeah. the original. There's a lot of thing issues that people had with that. So then we got flat packs and snaps. I don't know which one came first. Snaps were first. Don't really, By don't like really care. Weeks. But I think when we look at the whole open source environment and what we're trying to push, like with Ike, he creates a game engine. He doesn't hold it to himself and say, well, I'll create my game open source, but I'm going to make the engine closed source. No, he gives it all out to everybody. And I personally do, and I've said it before, and people don't like it, have an issue with the fact that snaps are sitting on servers that are proprietary. I don't think that should exist. I think if you're going to give things to the open source community, you give it all, like Flatpak has. And that's my issue with snaps. Yeah, I agree. And I think that since me and Ryan were involved in the Betamax versus VHS, uh, you're going to take <laughs> Blu-ray and I'm going to do HD DVD. All right? So... Uh, let's okay. But seriously, I, would, I don't want to take that argument because I was one of the fools that thought HD DVD was going to be it. So I invested Same. in HD DVD, and then yep. everybody went Blu-ray, and I was like, "Well, I was." Meanwhile, wrong. the entire world should have gone to a MKV file format that you could download with no DRM. But you know, that's just me. So speaking of not related to any of that, uh, <laughs> we're talking about the, the stuff about the game engine. <laughs> And, you know, that the what Ryan said about the game engine being open source and everything, it's awesome. And it's, but it's all, another thing that's awesome about that is you are making a game with that engine, and we haven't really talked about yeah. that. So tell us a little bit about the last Peacekeeper. Would be sort of uh, Homeworld meets Battlestar Galactica. Ooh. And in purple, <laughs> may. Uh, that sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, I like anything that's story driven, and BSG is just. Is the business. Yes. Uh, yep. But if you think of something slightly with the visual and novel style of Homeworld with a kind of neon feel to it, and then you're kind of getting the vibe I'm going for, kind of thinking of not so much open world. And open world is a statement I really don't like because it's not. It's never really an open world. Uh, if you could, you'd be able to drive through all the malls on GTA. And <laughs> you can't do that. Um, I've tried it doesn't work only when it glitches and then you go through when you drop a few frames um yeah so it's like you'd have your own little space station as a base you can walk around inside it on top of that you're going to be able to go around in the ships and stuff uh in terms of mechanics haven't really thought too much into it um apart from you know the storyline we want rich character development and we want them to have ugly traits that people tend to avoid so substance misuse and you know real world issues that people gloss over we want these to be you know defining characteristics of actual characters because otherwise they're caricatures, you know. So we want yeah. that kind of mm -hmm. thing in a game. It is, it's kind of hard to sort through the mess that is my brain and bring <laughs> it out there, but I know it's you know, there's good, a... so I... <laughs> there you go. There's this game called This War of Mine, and it's an India game out there. I don't know if any of you have ever played it, but it was one of the games that 
I, I don't know. For me, it, it's it's 2D graphics, but it shook me. The storyline was so good that it shook me because the whole idea is you're in this war-torn area and you're trying to keep your family alive. That's the premise. And to keep your family alive, you have neighbors and people who were your friends before. And you have to decide, do you go rob them? Do you take their food to feed your own family? Because the whole place is war-torn and blowing up and soldiers are coming in and taking families away and stuff. Or do you try to gang up with them to create a bigger family that may be able to protect themselves better? And it just struck me. And I, when you said that you're trying to create a storyline that actually matters, that kind of concept of a game stuck with me there. That's what first thing that popped in my head. So tell me more about how important the storyline piece is and how are you going about developing that so it does matter? Because I think that's an interesting process that people don't think about in game development. Looking to do the typical setup in the first few scenes, uh, the vibe I want to give is sort of almost feel like a, a cheesy 80 kickback in the first few scenes. Uh-huh. It feels like a typical 80s space game. Like, yeah. uh, but just before you press stop on the recording, like start making it a little bit interesting, that's sort of the vibe. Um, main player is basically going to be set up I want to put a lot of loneliness in the game, uh, enforced loneliness to see how the characters would actually play out wow. in situations that we're not accustomed to. Hence, thinking of you know BSG kind of inspirations. Uh, so we're kind of thinking I'm tying with the idea of genocide events um, to make you completely lonely. But like, even though you're a part of the human race is alone, I want you to be alone against the rest of the human race as well in the start. And then every time any bit of hope is built up for your character, just as you're starting to see light at the end of the tunnel, I'm going to rip it back again. <laughs> so that's sort of the way I'm going to do it. Sort of toy with the emotions as the game starts to develop. And, you know, and my head just said something about tapestry, and I hate, I hate cliche words. I hate them. But you, you get the idea. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You had me at Battlestar Galactica anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of the idea that, are you imagining that it's the characters who are lonely or the player who is because i mean with some games um you're you're watching or you're leading the character on their own arc of progress but for something like this war of mine yeah it's kind of the characters doing it but it's really the player making the difficult decisions as opposed to you controlling nathan drake while nathan drake is sad about stuff you know so um how are you how are you having that um protagonist player split well i'd be more for that as well in terms of your decisions will matter and part of that is leaving the player in the dark a typical thing for game is especially with the use of cutscenes is give away everything it's like the the bad guy monologue uh, which feels a bit like what i'm doing at the moment (laughs) um you know you don't want to give away all of the secrets and you can't give the whole hand away to the player uh to the actual player as if the character doesn't know Instead, it's more like the, the character's more in the know and your team is more in the know than you, the player. That's sort of the angle I'd like to go for. So you're sitting there wondering why are these things happening? What, how are these things connected? You know. So uh, if people are interested in the sound of this and want to get involved in seeing it happen, you've got a thing called the Game Razor, right? Mm. What's the deal with that? Uh, originally, it was called Turk Game Razor with a Z, but then I thought trademarks and so i quickly fixed that (laughs) (laughs) it's it's kind of a crowdfunding attempt really um people can buy you know a a lifetime license which 
you know, gotcha is for 2D games because we don't know if we'll ever go beyond 2D, but, you know, that that's keeping our options open for the future. Basically, you buy the license, it's $20, and that's dollars in American money, not now the failing Brexit 50 pence coins. <laughs> um, I don't know, too soon. Um, yeah, so you buy a lifetime license, any game that we ever release in 2D, you would be entitled to as long as there's a medium that supports it. Uh, basically, I can't mail you a copy if it went on a Nintendo console, whatever that happened to be, because, you know, emulator rules and whatever. Uh, but if it's something that can be made as a digital download, i.e. a laptop PC, then yeah, that's kind of the idea. So it helps fund the development on there. There is another option as well if you're sitting there thinking... Uh, why do I want to give you a license when I'm only interested in your framework? Which I can understand, you know, people's probably going to be like, hey dude, I'm never playing one of your games, but your framework kind of looks like it's going to be something decent. So I joined the GitHub sponsor program. Uh, I got accepted. Woo! So you can sponsor me on there if you want. There's a, a variety of, of options on there. Uh, one of them is deliberately left for corporate interest. Basically, if they want to support me for a thousand dollars a month then i'll port it to the platform of their choice um, may as well be realistic that's why the gold's there it's called the lofty indie bootstrap go because the idea is eventually serpent will run on more than one platform yeah so there's a few different ways i'm gonna to pay the thousand dollars and put commodore in there just to mess with you <laughs> <laughs> or cpc 3000 <laughs> right so i love this idea of twenty dollars right now you're only giving 500 of these away so if people are interested in playing games that Ike is developing here, I got one. The second I heard about this, I purchased one of these. But $20, you get a lifetime license to play these games. There's only 400 licenses that are left out there. So if you are a gamer or interested in these games and what we've talked about here, you should grab one up while they last. Thank you so much, Ike, for coming in and chatting with us today about Lispy Snake and Last Peacekeeper. We're excited to get our hands on the game and would love to have you back in the near future. So please keep us in mind and don't be a stranger. Thank you very much. Oh, and just one final note. Uh, I know there's going to be this whole debate. Oh, Ike said this about Snap. Ike said this about Left Uh It's just my own personal views. I don't really care about either of them. I just want to make that completely honest. <laughs> Fair enough. That's <laughs> yeah, true to Ike that we know too. Yeah. yeah, I just don't care. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Ike. It's so awesome to have you back. I'm very excited about this game. And if you get the feeling that, hey, I need somebody to test this out that could really give it a uh, you know good in-depth review, I want you to think about this guy right here because I want to play this game. Like, I thought you were going to say the true gamer Noah up there. What? What? No! Yeah. Give it to Almost me! Not it. Stuart, not Michael, not Noah, me. I'm going to be completely selfish <laughs> in this here's the, here, I'll, I'll give you my sales pitch. Here's the thing. If you want an accurate game review, give it to Ryan. If you want a positive game review from somebody who doesn't know any better, give it to me. Amazing game ever. Are you saying that you guys haven't already got your beta copies? You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> You just ruined my day, Stuart. Ike, thank you so much for coming on, man. We really do appreciate it. And thank you for holding your arm in that position for an hour and a half. People are wondering. I'm actually sat in the car and I'm holding a laptop. So, hey. (laughs) I hope you can still get some coding done today. (laughs) In the community feedback this week, Linus writes in and says, first off, thank you for the show. I've been lurking in the Linux waters for about 10 years now and took the deep dive and put Lubuntu on my main computer last spring. 
and I haven't looked back since. Though I have, I have to use Windows 10 for work, sadly. But that's understandable. A lot of people do have to do that. Uh, your podcast is great for catching up all the FOSS news, and your ban- your banter make it very entertaining. He says, I want to support you, which I will, but I try to limit my different platforms, so registering for another one is something I try to keep away from. Is there any way you could perhaps set up a donation system with PayPal directly so that we can do recurring payments or something like that through that? I've seen this with a few projects that I try to donate to. I'm not interested in any perks or anything like that, but I just wanted to keep you on the air. Best wishes from Sweden, Linus. The reason why I wanted to include this, Michael, this week is because we get this a lot. People are not interested in sponsors or patron. They want to just donate directly via PayPal. For the most part, we don't allow this because we do want to give perks like being able to watch the show behind the scenes like our patrons are now and things like that. We can't we don't have any system to accommodate that if we just use PayPal to know who still subscribed, who donated the money they need, who didn't, that type of thing. But I know, Michael, it's something that we've always had in our minds to do because it gets asked quite a bit. So I kind of wanted to address it on the show of what our options are. For the future. Yeah. So I think that it's, it's a good option. If, as long as it's clear that if you are using sponsors and Patreon, you will get some extra bonuses and, a- and access to stuff. But if you're using PayPal, you won't be because it's just not technically possible to there's, there's so much effort involved in trying to make something like that with PayPal that it's just not practical. And PayPal doesn't offer anything of any sort to, you know, just even to get notified to people. So PayPal is kind of a mess in terms of on the creator side. So that's why we don't usually, you know, have an option for it, but I'm open to it. If we, if, as long as we can make and make it sure that when people go to the become a patron or whatever, that they know that if they do choose PayPal, there's really not a way for that structure to be implemented. And if they're fine with that, then Sure. Why not? Or maybe we could create like a special room in Telegram or something where if people want to pay for a whole year, there's something here we'll figure out, you yeah, know, that maybe we can we can figure out a, a workaround for it. But I just wanted people to know we hear you. We've heard it quite a bit and we're going to find a solution that will work, hopefully. Right. Absolutely. So Jason writes in to say, hello, all. Let's start by saying I love the show. Regular listener of the podcast. You guys make my morning commute so much easier. I'm guessing some of you and your listeners have families with young children. I'm looking for a Wi-Fi router or software application, like a net nanny, that can help me with parental controls, limiting access around bedtime, etc. We have a mixed environment at home, Linux, Windows, sorry, Android tablets and iPhones. Ideally, a router would be as good as it can to stop and block internet access. I would be really interested to know what others are using or if you have any personal experience with such a task. Many thanks and keep up the great work. I feel like, Noah, this question was made for you in some way, um, but I can tell you my personal solution is Mm -hmm. on the Orbi routers. They have parental control options built in that um, allow you to set up certain criteria to block YouTube content or to block certain things that may be considered adult. It's okay. Uh, A lot of the times for me, it's more about being with my kids which I think is almost equally as important when they're utilizing these services, at least at my kids' ages, which are between the five and seven realm, uh, than just kind of hoping that the router is going to block the right things online because there's a lot of people who are, for whatever evil reason, trying to spoof things in YouTube kid videos and other things to put horrible things in there so your kids are exposed to that because, I don't know, their moms didn't hug them enough. So I think as a parent, you should be there 
especially determining the age of your kids. And I think you also have to sit your kids down because they may go to a friend's house where they don't have that router block access, or the kids may be savvy enough to just put a VPN on and get around it all together that you just need to sit down and talk to them about the things that are out there, the things they're going to see and educate them on it and have those conversations, I think is almost as important as putting a technological block on your system. But Noah, what are your thoughts? So first thing first, I don't like things that are built into like parental control tabs that are built into specific routers because it, 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 it causes magic script addiction. It causes me to say, it, it causes users to say things like, well, now I can't ever leave the OB router because that's what does the parental controls for the kids, right? So I try to focus on uh, solutions that can be applied hardware agnostic, that things that will apply to any hardware. And so what we've done in our house, we have a combination of things. First of all, I agree. 100% that the real way to solve this problem is to engage your kids and be involved with them and then, and not to imply that you're not, but uh, to engage with them and, and, and be involved with them and then walk them through responsible ways to consume content. So we sat down with our kids and I, we just had a conversation Say, Hey, I don't really like the fact that you guys spend so much time on YouTube. I would like you to, to, to watch some content or get interested in some content that maybe has some educational value or at least has some writers that were paid to write a, a positive uh, you know, story arc and a positive message and, and, and something that you know, has a story arc rather than, like you say, these adults that dress up in costumes and do some weird things and for whatever reason, maybe their mother didn't hug them enough as you so eloquently said. <laughs> You know, I just have those conversations with my kids. And then I pair that with a little bit of technical oversight, which is that I do track uh, what DNS queries come through my kids' computers. And, and so I can go back and look and say, you know, what were they what were they looking for? What sites are they visiting? What sites are they going to? So on and so forth. And of course, you are, uh, YouTube is kind enough that each time you click on a video, that URL then is, is cached inside of, the, inside of the gateway. And so you can go back and look. Uh, specifically what videos they're watching, even if I don't have, even if I didn't have access to their Google account or they weren't signed in, so on and so forth. Um, I don't block that stuff. I just go and talk to them and say, hey, you won't be doing this in my house. I'll trade my parent card in for anything. Um, and then the other thing I do is I do schedule SSID times. And so their SSID shuts off at bedtime. And that's partly because uh, of a parental control thing. The other thing is it's just a general security practice. Why in the world would I leave an SSID that has a slightly easier passphrase on it because the kids need to be able to connect their devices, but why would I leave that hole open to my network um, when, the pe when the very people that it's set up for aren't allowed to be using it anyway? Um, and so I just kill that SSID and I was scheduled to, to kill that SSID at night, which you can do on pretty much any uh, right. commercial or enterprise router or uh, uh, access point, excuse me. So, Stuart, any thoughts on this yourself? I'm not a particularly good uh, test case for this because my daughter's 19. So You don't when... block her access to YouTube at 19? <laughs> I do not. Um, but, I mean, you said, you said that your kids are about five, six, seven, that kind of age. Yeah. Um, and at that point in my life when I was the um I didn't have really have this problem to deal with my daughter didn't have her own laptop she didn't have her own phone anything like that so I haven't really had to address this I to the extent that I did I take a slightly different approach to Noah but also um similar to both of you in that the most important thing is to talk to them I went to the view that I wouldn't look at what she did I wouldn't track what she did or keep logs for her or anything, but I did spend a lot of time talking to her, especially since um, she's uh, she's a woman and she was young about safety online. There's a very good book by uh, Violet Blue called the 
um, I'd have to look up the name of it. And it was written um, some time ago now, but it's about young women staying safe online. Uh, very valuable. So I never did a technological solution, but that's largely because it was a bit early for that to come up. I don't know what I would do now. I'd probably at least look at them. Yeah. So I, I don't know if that's helpful to Jason. No. I think uh, the, the impression I have is he was kind of looking for, here's half a dozen different products you could use. <laughs> and, and instead we're kind of, oh, well, that's not really the solution. But yeah, I kind of feel myself that technology isn't necessarily the approach to be taken here. But I know some yeah. parents disagree with me on that. Yep. I, I think there's a lot of truth in there, right? It's the idea that if you if you think that technology can solve the problem of your uh, of your child's privacy and online safety, then you don't understand online safety and you don't understand the technology, right? Because those it, it, it it's that's you're not you're approaching the symptom, you're not really treating the problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that that's good way of putting it. And I think the other thing that I wanted to avoid is the concept of forbidden fruit that if something if you are kept away from something then it immediately becomes more exciting and that applied to you know segueing from technology into being a parent (laughs) Uh, that applied to almost everything alcohol or staying up late or uh looking at things on the internet or whatever um if something if you are banned from something then it's inherently slightly more exciting and slightly more transgressive to partake in it in secret. And that's never what I wanted. I, I, I didn't want my daughter to, to feel that she had to keep whatever she was doing secret from me. And largely that's worked out unless she, unless she's really actually really, really, really good at it. And I just don't know. <laughs> yeah. And so Stuart, one of our patrons found the book, they think the smart girl's guide to privacy, practical tips for staying safe online by Violet Blue. By Violet Blue. That, that's exactly the one. Yes. Perfect. Totally. And, um, and, uh, Gert in the chat mentions that young kids might be searching for innocent things and beach sites that aren't so innocent. And yeah, I can, uh, I can understand that. And there are some things you basically Google has safe search on by default for precisely this reason. Uh, and that's, that's a reasonable point, but that's a that's an extremely difficult problem to solve technologically because any kind of filtering software you put in place is either going to miss a whole bunch of things you might not want your kids to see, whether it's uh, the weird YouTube videos you're talking about or whatever, right. um, or if it if they do do a good job. Uh, in your parental opinion of keeping away everything, they'll also keep away a whole bunch of stuff that they shouldn't be suppressed from. Almost every piece of blocking software out there has a very angry community of people who say, you're you're keeping uh, my kids from looking at pages about coming out as gay, for example. And there's a lot of stuff out where people should not be blocked from seeing it. And it's difficult to find a piece of blocking software which isn't taking some kind of a moral stance and that's not necessarily the moral stance that you would take as a parent plus even if you put all that in place and it was perfect they go to their friend's house whose parents are technologically ignorant and now they have this free reign this forbidden fruit where they can search for whatever they want and you can't block their house you can't fix that so that's why i say yes there are solutions but the best solution is sitting down with your child talking to them 
on a regular basis, not just once, yeah. on a constant basis about this is what you're going to see. This is what you could find. This is why you may not want to do that. And, you know, um, yeah. just have those conversations with your children. I think that's the most important part. You can layer on some of the techno technology things, but those aren't universal. It's not going to work when they go somewhere else. Yeah, so you go, search, you go searching for innocent content, find sites that aren't so innocent, then they'll go, ah, oh, don't really want to look at that, in much the same way that I do if I'm doing research for work or whatever. I'm like, that's not what I'm looking for. Close that tab. Right, exactly. And, and that's the kind of thing, rather than being kind of, oh, I'm amazed I didn't know any of this existed. Yeah. That's good. I love that. That's great points all around. Hey, we love hearing from our worldwide community. We have many ways for your voice to be heard. If you want to send a short email or a video, Hey, it just might get incorporated in the show. You can send those to comments at destinationlinux.org. So in news this week, GNOME 3.36, we're starting to get some sneak peeks into it anyway, just ahead of the Ubuntu 20.04 LTS release. So obviously it's still in development and things might change, but there are some things that GNOME lovers can get excited about, apparently. <laughs> so... To give you um, some examples, there's uh, the Do Not Disturb toggle is now a lot more accessible than it was. There's a new extension application called the Gnome Extensions app for, you know, About truth in naming. time, really. Yes. Well, finally. yeah. <laughs> um, there's a new lock screen, actually, which is no longer two separate screens. The password field appears on the same screen replaces the time and date so it doesn't uh it's not a two-step thing like the world's saddest wizard <laughs> um there's a password peaking option in password fields so uh you can you can explicitly view the password if you want to if you're sure no one's looking over your shoulder and there are a bunch of settings panel improvements and tweaks and things like that and there's obviously a lot more under the hood but i suspect the most exciting feature for most will be the extensions application yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the Michael the, nodding. <laughs> the, the extensions application is like, like the thing is finally, really, it's like that you've had extensions for years and there's no way to install them except for like if you know that there was a backdoor installation thing through the GNOME tweak tool about yeah. four years ago. And then all of a sudden, like, and the, the funny thing is at the time when you wanted to install an extension, you had to install the browser and integration configuration stuff. And if, if you were using Chrome, well, you just couldn't do that because it only worked in Firefox, which Firefox is the best browser. So it makes sense. They would do that. But the whole thing is that, you know, people did do use Chrome and Chromium and you, you couldn't use it at the time. So they didn't have a way to download the extensions, but they did have a way to install those extensions with the GNOME tweak tool. And after about three years or so, they made it possible to download the extensions and then they remove the ability to install them from the GNOME Tweak tool. So when you could install them, you can't get them. When you can get them, you can't install them. So finally, we have a solution, and I applaud you for adding it this at this point. At well, least. this is what was so interesting, because I think we talked last week where I told you a lot of people you know, will tell us they love GNOME, and it's their favorite desktop environment. They love the workflow of it. So I always ask, well do you use any extensions with it? And you'll get varying answers. But it was interesting when Popey did his Twitter out there and said, hey, what GNOME extension are you using? That all of these folks who are, you know, big supporters of GNOME and all of that had this whole list of extensions that they were layering in to make GNOME. You have to. It, it, well, some people will argue you don't, but I feel like you have to. And I think obviously those people who use it on a regular basis clearly do because there was this whole list. And I've always been told that GNOME just kind of yeah, they accept their extensions out there, but they kind of ignore it. It's not really something they 
wanted people to go out there and go do, and it seems now I, they're they're finally accepting I, the I, fact that I, extensions have to exist. I respectfully disagree with that. Every every GNOME developer I have talked to since the inception of GNOME 3 has been has given me a very consistent answer on that. And the answer has been we design GNOME shell to be just that, a shell, and you add the extensions for the functionality that you want in. So I I I couldn't agree more that it's frustrating that there was no more clean way to install the extensions, but by all measurements, they you need extensions to be able to get back to the level of desktop functionality that even GNOME 2 had. But if, if your point was true, and I'm not saying it's not, but if it was true mm -hmm. and extensions were meant to be a part of GNOME, then you would have a pop-up when you installed GNOME that says, hey, you want to install these extensions and everything would be set up. And that's never been the case. It's been this no, work, and, 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 weird and again, workaround thing. Yes. But what I'm saying is, okay, so let me see if I can reframe this a little bit. Gnome is designed that you could use it out of the box if you're willing to accept the defaults in Gnome. But every time you every time you ask a, a Gnome person, well, why doesn't Gnome do this? Their answer is, well, there's an extension for that. Well, how about this? Well, there's an extension for that. Well, how about this? Well, there's an extension. Seems like we need extensions for just about everything. Yeah, that's the, that's the idea. We have the minimum core, and then you add the functionality that you need on top of that. That's the Linux way. That's the answer I get. Well, even um, our patrons, we have one that says I've never used extensions in GNOME, and we have one that says they use 16 extensions. So, Right. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it depends on what you want out of it. Now, if you want your desktop to look like crap and be big and bloated and have ugly things and no functionality, then you can get away without using extensions. If you want any of those things, then you have to use extensions. <laughs> oh, come on, Noah. Uh, okay. All right. All right. GNOME is pretty sometimes like Pop no, OS's version of GNOME. I love Pop OS's version of GNOME. I could use it all day long. No Sounds problem. like an extension to me. Well, I think they, they do, they do, do a lot of extensions, extensions yes, and things and like that. But it's just an example that I don't call it big and bloated and ugly. I think it's gorgeous. Yeah, because it has extensions. Well, yeah. it's okay. the default one is sure. not the most prettiest thing. And that's also because their icons have always lacked a lot. And they even made a new icon set that still doesn't get the reason why their old icon set is was bad. Uh, and they and Edweta doesn't really fit the rest of the thing. But overall, if you look at no. just the shell, the shell's kind of good. I think we're missing the point, folks. I the like the workflow. We should be applauding and saying, "Finally!" And yeah. that's the yeah, point. Exactly. Uh, and it's, it's, it, now. it is good, and I'm glad that they have brought the extensions back in. And I would say that while I'm not a GNOME user, I do prefer the GNOME workflow, and that's why I have it inside of my Plasma setup. So it, it is a really good workflow, and I'll give them credit for that. Because prior to me using GNOME, I wouldn't have even considered that workflow. So. I have it now. Stuart, and I, do I like know it. you're a you're a Mate fan, but have you ever dabbled in GNOME? What are your thoughts on the workflow yeah, for, you, yeah. for, for you personally? Um, I've I, I've used GNOME a bunch. Um, I've written extensions for it. I handed them off, and I stopped using GNOME just because I wasn't using it every day. Um, but Same. yeah, it's it's you know fine. Um, uh, I I personally quite like the look of it. I know other people don't and, you know, live and let live, whatever. I think the point you were making earlier about how extensions are there so you can customize the shell to work the way you want is exactly right. I suspect, how can I put this? The people on this show and who listen to this show are pretty skewed towards the end of the world that tends to fiddle around with how their desktop shell works, or even has the concept of fiddling around with how their desktop shell works. Right? I mean, yeah, I agree with you. You have the option to customize it to 
how you want it to work. And I'm utterly the kind of person who will do that. I mean, much less so now than I used to be. But even now, I mean, yes, technically I'm running Marte, but I changed the side panel. So it's actually got plug as the dock because uh, the the default Marte one didn't let me position it at the bottom and it had some kind of weird overlap thing going on. I didn't like it. So yeah, I don't want to be a desktop fiddler and I still am. My parents' <laughs> computer, for example, not only have they not customized how their shell works, I don't <laughs> think they'd understand the question. <laughs> or, or even conceive of a need to do such a thing. You say, well, have you not thought about how your desktop might work differently? And I think my dad would go, no, I haven't thought about it. That's not my job. That's okay. your job. So, so, playing, <laughs> so playing devil's advocate as a guy who supports the GNOME desktop for a number of different people, users don't necessarily always know that they need an extension, but they know that the that the appearance and the presentation of the desktop desktop environment is different from that from which they're used to in other desktop environments and so when they go looking for that functionality and they may not find that lever that switch that's when we start to incorporate i think extensions as a function of necessity to get the the desktop experience that the user wants and i guess just to kind of circle and bring that all back home it sounds like you and i kind of agree with this but that's what the gnome the developers expect you to do is when you're looking for functionality that isn't there that's why it's very extensible is that yeah. a fair i well certainly that's i'd agree with that i mean I have some issues with the way GNOME extensions actually work, but I think the concept, what you're describing there, is both correct and is the way the GNOME people want it to be. That They start with, as you say, the the core, and then if you want it to work like this thing you're familiar with from Windows or this thing you're familiar with from MacOS or this thing you're familiar with from Unity, then absolutely, there's an extension for that. Makes right, sense. and now you can install them in a place where you can actually find them. You Yay! can. So, um, so a, job, a, a question then, based on that, um, given all the, this stuff that I've just described, including the extensions and everything, and also given the volcanic fire hose of support for plasma earlier, <laughs> are any of you actually going to give this a try? I will. I I I like GNOME. Um, I really wish they would tailor themselves towards portable devices because to me, the whole interface and the way it's set up would be perfect for touchscreen and tablets and other things. But I have to, I'm, I'm forced to use it in desktop environments because there's really not a lot of devices that take advantage of it in a you know mobile fashion. But I definitely will give it a try. I love trying out the different desktop environments. There was a time period, if you look way back, probably when you were on the show, Stuart, where I just didn't get GNOME at all. And it was kind of a thing because Rocco used it and I couldn't stand it. I was, you know, hardcore. But then Rocco challenged me and said, use it for 30 days and then come back. And if you still have the same opinion, fine. And I did. And you know what? It worked. I didn't have massive issues. The world wasn't falling. My computer didn't set on fire. Like I could get my work done. It wasn't the workflow for me. But I understood why people liked it at that point. People who, who like I... I don't like something taking over my whole screen when I click the menu, for example. I, I want to be able to see all the things going on at once because I usually have multiple screens. That's why I like window managers. But that's me. Some people love that, and that's their favorite feature yeah. of GNOME, and I think that's the point of it all is it's personal preference, and thank goodness we got the choice. Oh, yeah. I think that's a valuable experience and a valuable experiment you did. There are an awful lot of people out there in our community who are very quick to condemn and are not at all quick to experiment. 
or to accept in the way way that you're describing. And I wish they'd all pack it in because (laughs) it's such a hostile environment for someone who's new or a bit unfamiliar or a bit afraid of what it is they're doing. And it scares people away. If you show up and say, hi, I'm thinking of moving to Linux. I'm interested. I've read about it a bit in, I I caught a Forbes article by Jason Evangelo, or um, I read about it in the paper, or I watched a YouTube video. I'm interested in getting involved with this. So I was thinking about this. So I downloaded um, Ubuntu 18.04, and then you get a thousand comments, people saying, why would you support Google? They're terrible. Why would you use Ubuntu? Use this distribution. Don't use GNOME. Use KDE. And someone's not going to go, Wow, how helpful the community is to yeah. give me all the choices. They're going to go, you know what? Yeah. Like you can take your Linux and you can glue it on a frisbee and fling it over a rainbow. I'm going back to Windows. Because so, it always feels like whatever you do is the wrong decision. Yep. Yes. Well, I ran you into know, that I, in the 30 days of Linux when I joined Linux. Oh, yeah. one, of, one of the reasons, you know, I started doing videos and the first thing I did was I had Ubuntu and I had Unity, like everybody else who starts in Linux. And I didn't have any connection with anybody in the community. I just did this on a whim, I'm going to try 30 days of Linux thing. And I was getting immediately responses, do not use Ubuntu, oh, Unity's the devil, blah, 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 like all of this junk. And I was like, what are these people talking about? No, you've got to use yeah. this. Future, use future, Ryan was, future Ryan was trying to convince previous Ryan that Arch was the way. Well, yeah, naturally. I mean, once you find that. But it's funny because you say that, but this is something we've actually had to figure out in our own show. Because when we have, like, I love Arch. I love Arch. I think Arch is fantastic. I love some of the things yeah. Arch does. But yeah, people hey, Stuart, did you know that. that he ran Arch? Did you know that? People will take that and they will use that <laughs> as ammunition against anything else. And that's not, and sometimes even when we joke uh, about Plasma or XFCE or anything else, oh, I'm, and I'm making joking. fun of Michael or I'm making fun of Noah. People take that seriously in the community, those type of people you're talking about, Stuart, and we'll use that as ammunition. And it affects the way we can do a show because we're like, uh, if I make that joke, at least for me, I have to filter it out and go, are people going to say, oh, Ryan must hate Gnome because he made fun of so-and-so for using it. It's just meant to give somebody a razzing properly. Yeah, and it's also know? like in the situation where when we're giving a hard time about something, it's not because we don't like it or we ha- we can't find a value in it. Like I, for example, I might be a little bit hard on them about the extensions not being there, but in my opinion, if they f- have always focused on extensions or a fundamental design, why, it shouldn't have taken so many years to get a solution to get make it easier to do. So that's just... We want them to be better. We want everything to be as, as as best as possible that it can be made. And we just have ideas to express to get that to that direction. So even if we don't really, even if I don't want to use GNOME, it doesn't matter that other people want to use GNOME. That's fantastic. GNOME is a DE that re- looks really good out of the box. It's it's a lot more polished than Plasma. And I'll give them that. They put a lot of effort into the uh, initial uh, experience. So that's great. And I'll, I'll basically, if we're, if we're negative about something, it's not because we don't, you know, we have something against it or we definitely don't have any people who use it or the people who develop it. It's more like, we just think that there's, it can be better. And we want to express like the ideas to how it could get better. It's not to say that it's not good. It is good. It's just, it could be better. And that's the whole thing. Like all these different, we want the community to, you know, provide their criticism that when they have it, but Consider the people who you're talking to about that criticism because the beginner people aren't going to understand. Like when when Ryan was doing his 30 days of Linux, I think one of the main reasons he stayed with Linux is because he announced his 30 days of Linux challenge. And within the first couple of days, it was 
a, a reason to leave, but he was like, well, it's 30 days and I've got to, you know, honor my own word. And, right. you know, so like if in other positions, you, they might not willing to do that. And, you know, you got to consider that aspect as well. Well, thankfully, people swarmed from the other side, to Stuart's point, of the community into my channel. And those are the people that stuck me there. The ones that were like, use whatever you want. Use what's comfortable. Just get used to it. Don't worry about what other people... Those people came swarming in too. And that that kind of took those others out there out of my mind that, oh my gosh, I've got to get Ubuntu off my machine now because it's the devil. Like that, those people you know, kind of went yeah. to the side and I'm thankful for the individuals that did come to my channel to do that. But Stuart's point's dead on. This this exists in Linux very heavily right now. And I attempt at my best, even when people say, well, Ryan, you don't use GNOME. You don't, you don't like GNOME. No, I like GNOME fine. It's not for me. I'm really trying to clarify to people, even with Ubuntu and Arch. Do I love Arch? Yes. And I talk about Arch. Believe it or not, I run Arch in case anybody's wondering. But does that mean I hate <laughs> Ubuntu? No, I love Ubuntu. Ubuntu's fantastic. Do I have criticisms for why I use Arch over Ubuntu? Yes. That doesn't mean I don't like Ubuntu. If you want to use Ubuntu, use it. Love it. Noah and Michael and Stuart all use Ubuntu. And look, they're just fine. They're able to do a podcast and everything. Maine is currently being sued by ISPs for violating their free speech. And I use my air fingers quote there to say free speech by requiring ISPs to get customers opt in permission before sharing their sensitive browsing history, their location data. Maine's new law goes into effect on July 1st and prohibits a provider of broadband internet access service from disclosing, selling, or permitting access to customer personal information unless the customer expressly consents to that use and disclosure for sale or access. The legislation also prohibits a provider from refusing to serve a customer, charging a customer a penalty, or offering a customer a discount if the customer does not consent to use uh, the disclosure, sale, or access of their personal information. The argument from the ISP states that Maine cannot discriminate against the subset of companies that collect and use consumer information by attempting to regulate and subset and not others, especially given the absence of any legislation or finding of any evidentiary support that would justify targeting ISPs alone. So, here is how, how this kind of breaks down. It, you, you essentially, it breaks down into t- to two parts. On one hand, you have people that are fighting the right battle, and they're saying, I don't want my data to be used without my permission. It's my data. I own it, and I want to use it. And I think where I take a f- exception to this law, while I agree that ISPs should be getting permission from their customers before they use their data, the problem that that I have with this law and the problem that they're going to have if they appeal it to a, to, to, a, to a higher court is that there's no precedence for this. And if you want to start precedence for this, then you then we have to we should be very, very cautious before we admit that what we want to happen is for the federal government to step in and start uh, either the federal government or the state government to start stepping in and deciding what information is protected, who gets access to that information, and how it can be disseminated, or we're going to wind up with a mess like HIPAA. My, my, my problem is that you are telling an ISP that they make a certain amount of their revenue from this, certain amount of revenue from this, certain amount of revenue from this, and you're taking one of those options off the table and expecting the ISP to deliver the same service at the same price with a major a portion of their revenue gone. And so I could get behind a law that says you have to disclose to the customer that you are going to let other people get access to their data. I would support a law that says that you have to give people the option to buy out 
their privacy if they want to pay an excess fee to have their privacy. I think that this law goes a little bit too far. And I think that what's going to end up happening is that a court is going to overrule it because if an ISP can't do that, then why can Google do that? If Google can't do that, then why can Yahoo do that? And, and, and the, the list is just going to go on and on and on. And what's eventually going to happen, I'm afraid, if this is taken to its logical conclusion, well, Twitter shuts down, Facebook shuts down, and maybe some of you care or don't care about that, but the reality is these companies make their money off of selling data, and we as a consumer base have told them that we're not willing to pay for Twitter. We're not willing to pay for Facebook. I can't remember the name of the social media site. It's on the tip of my tongue. I have an account there. I pay for it, um, and it's a social media network that is specifically exists where they don't collect any data, they don't share any data, but you pay a monthly subscription to be on that network. And so there is very little, if any, spam. Um, most companies won't go there because it's not just as simple as creating an account. They have to actually interact with people if they, they're going to pay the money to do that. Um, and so it's a very clean ecosystem, obviously very small to the point I don't even remember the name, but the idea is there, right? And what that tells me is that people are not willing, for the most part, to pay money for their data or for their to keep their privacy they would rather pay with their privacy. I think the vast majority of people, you walk to them on the street and say, do you care if Facebook takes all your data as long as you can use it for free? They'd say, yeah, you have to pay 19 bucks a month. Would you uh, let Facebook take all your pictures and scrape your statuses and all that, um, but you don't have to pay the 19 bucks a month? Nine out of 10 people are going to check the box to See, take it I for free. I think we're on polar opposites of this argument. I uh, figured we would be. Yeah, I, as someone who has an Edward Snowden picture on his wall, I'm really surprised you took that side of the argument. Although I do agree that the way that this law is being written, although I plot it 100% for them doing it and taking this action, is mm -hmm. does put them, put the specifically ISPs at a disadvantage. But here's the difference. I pay specifically for the ISP to provide me. I'm giving them money every mm -hmm. month to provide mm -hmm. me internet, not to sell my data. That's I'm not paying true. them. So you're that's talking about Facebook. That's not true. You're talking that's about not, Google and true. all of them, which don't have a paid option, right? And that's not, everybody that's is not using that with the exception of with the understanding that this is a free service and in place for using this service, my personal data is going to be violated. In okay. my ISP, I am paying Fuck. for access. You're not. To the internet. You're, you're, no, you're not. And, he, and here's why. Yes, that, is not a, that is not. A, no, you're not. And th that is not a fair comparison because you haven't taken into account the loss of revenue that the ISP is going to suffer when they can't sell that data. So here's the thing. If yes, you want to say this was a thing. Before no. this was a thing, all the ISPs were doing fine, making billions before of dollars and still able before, to expand their networks. But suddenly, no. this revenue stream is everything to them. Come before on. this was a thing, we had 56K modems that were connected to the phone lines, which was subsidized wasn't by the This wasn't the thing that allowed ISPs. And after we had 56K modems, Absolutely we had governmental was. subsidies to let them no, make the thing. First of all, at, for, so... We can dive into where fiber financing came from, and the vast majority of it did not come from the federal government. It also came from ISPs financing. themselves, which is no, it did not. Which is why, when when we circle back to talk about, uh, you know, trying to introduce some of these legislations to make, you know, getting rid of the fast lane and all of that, when we start talking about, uh, when we start start talking about meters and so on and so forth, this is why it came back, and the ISPs came back and said, "Listen, if you wanted to make that argument, the argument of whether or not fiber was a common carrier or not should have been had back in the early '90s before." We invested millions and millions and millions of dollars onto this. So here's here's a fair here's a here would be a fair way to make that argument if that's your position, Ryan. 
if the uh, you you go ahead and tell the ISP, fine, you can charge me whatever you want. You can offset the amount of money that you are making from selling this data, and you can pass that off to the consumer. Then it will be a fair comparison to say, I pay for that, and so you can't sell my data. We can say that, but then you have to compensate out of your pocket for the loss in revenue of the of the ISP. And, and if we're not willing to do that, and the ISP says, all right, I'm folding up and going home, you can go ahead and get HughesNet satellite internet with 17 second you know, delay uh, period, because that's the best you're going to get in your area, because we're certainly not going to do it. Or what's happening in my neck of the woods, which is the major ISPs fold up shop and take off because they can't, they're for a variety of reasons, but they, they, they just can't hack it here. And then what you wind up with is wisps and and little community organizations that put up some wireless antennas and go well it doesn't really work all the time or really all that well but hey it's better than nothing that's what you're going to wind up with or you're going to wind up in the hands of the telcos and the cell phone carriers and doing everything where on metered data where you're going to pay for every megabyte you use so i would i would i would strongly 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 encourage people to proceed with this kind of thing with extreme caution because there there are a couple things that are true in the market Companies are never going to give up their profits. When you go into Walmart and tell them that you're going to pass some government regulation that's going to require them to sell food at a lower price or have a minimum mandated minimum salary, all of those things, those you're never, ever, 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 ever going to touch the CEO salary. What you're going to do is you're going to replace half of the people that work there with automated kiosks. And so when this law passes and when it gets become more widespread other than just Maine, and we get to a point where we go, man, you know what really sucks? I remember the day when we used to call our ISP and they'd send service technicians now. Now they mail us this home kit that they that they overnight or whatever from, from some India support specialist and you open up the little kit and plug it into the thing and it sends data back and then you... you but no, you, the whole point of having a, a capitalism is to have competition and the problem yes. is we don't have competition in this arena. I agree. You talked about having 10, 12 options that. to choose from. If I you agree. decide, if you decide, I don't want to give my personal information to my ISP, and they don't offer you an ability to pay for it, you then have no your choice. Service. Yes, you do. You cancel have your nothing. Service. You have no. You, internet, you have no internet, which puts you at an no, extreme disadvantage cancel. in life and society. You, you or cancel. No, you go you with go the one company. No, you, 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 go, you, what you do, and this is what I, I've watched this happen. Like, I've actually watched this happen. You cancel your internet and you go find your local WISP, which has, which they usually are able to negotiate with level three or, or some other, you know, main upstream Not provider. Every place provider has that a exists, local yeah. WISP. The, more places have WISPs than have access to fiber cable internet. There's, yes, uh, yes but there's because that's because the companies the don't push area, out fiber. There's no other companies there. Then, there are, there then are you work, then you then I tell you what, then you work or find somebody else that works to start one that will create something but the, that's ridiculous. This law does not, if you this, don't like it go ridiculous. create it yourself argument in yes, Linux. Yes, that's exactly the answer. If you don't like <laughs> what a, a company coder. is doing, if you don't like what a company is doing and the terms that they're offering to you, the answer is not let me go to government and try to force them to do what I think that they should do. The answer is you go do it better. That's true competition in the market. This doesn't do anything Except to there address are actual laws that allow so that we've restrict had this and there is still no competition in the market. No, there's, that's, there's that, also that laws that restrict competition in some states like there's there 20 are, states are, that's ridiculous that, that, that is, don't allow it. that is true that is true and i completely agree with that it is a hundred percent wrong and it is even worse for the fact that the isps oftentimes negotiate with state legislatures to ensure that people can't come up and, and do competition i will fight that and that we will agree on a hundred percent but i am telling you this 
law and laws like it are going to lead to far more problems down the road than they are going to lead to solutions. I promise you that's going to be the case. There is never going to be a, a legislative body that's going to be able to enact laws that's going to that that is going to force places to comp that is going to force places to 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 promote privacy. And I've watched that happen firsthand in the medical industry. We passed all of these laws on HIPAA. You can't stand more than 15 feet past the the, the front counter when a patient comes in and you can't only share information and all it has done is created hospitals now charge 200 to $300 if you want to get a copy of your records. And you know why? Because they have to jump through one hoop after the other to meet all of these stupid HIPAA requirements so that you can get access to your own patient data from your own medical provider and go to another hospital. And I have watched patients not be able to transfer providers or not be able to go someplace because they can't afford that fee. I've watched lawsuits where they have civil cases and they can't proceed because the lawyers can't get access to the medical data because the patient isn't willing to pay from 17 different providers. It has created far, it, the, the burden will always come back to the end consumer because they're going to find a way. The burden has already the, come back with no, the laws, no, with not right having now, laws. When you have 100 million, 100 million Americans only have one ISP company in their area. That's 100 not, million even, Americans only have one, according to I this article. Town, I live in a town of 50,000 people and I have seven ISPs that I congratulations can that doesn't mean so, that's everybody's experience okay so give me a place in the United States that doesn't have Verizon service AT&T service because both of those are separate ISPs and, a, and something that somebody could sign up for and then I'd like to look we go to but list you're finder. Metered internet right there that doesn't matter the point is you have a choice you can choose there was one choice None of those ISPs you talked about no. worked. Not one of them. None of those cell phone Verizon providers had have, coverage in the area. There was one. See, Verizon did not work. AT&T did not work. T-Mobile didn't work. Nobody had signal or towers there because it was a mountainous community. Only option you had was the local internet service provider was one. And a lot of people are in that situation. You may not be, okay. which is great. And I'm not no, now that I moved out of that the, area. I, I would argue but, that the vast majority of people live in an area where million people don't. I would love to see that. I would love to see what areas only have one service provider. And in fact, I tell you what, I can I can 100% tell you why that's false. Even if you only had one local provider, you still have three satellite providers that have the opportunity. And you can't tell me satellite can't get to wherever. And even if it's a mountainous area, you can put an antenna high enough and you'd be able to get satellite. You know internet. how crappy There's Hughes always, Internet is, yes, right? Yes, I do. But my point is, if you really it's care about internet. your if you really care about your privacy, you make those choices and you decide what things are important to you and what things aren't. But you, th this idea that I'm going to demand my cake and eat it too, I want fiber and you're going to provide it for me and you're going to provide it to me under these terms and these conditions and you won't do this to make money and you won't do that to make money. That's, I'm going to pay this fee and you're going to, that's not realistic. Nobody's demanding that. Nobody's but, even but asking even if that. We, what, what we're saying is I'm paying you don't I'm paying you to provide me internet. Don't go off and secretly go sell my data on top of it. Just that's provide fine. me then, internet that I'm fine. paying then, for. That, fine. So here's the way that law is written. You have to tell, you have to notify customers if you're selling their data. If they're not okay with it, then you can offset the cost you would have gotten from that advertising revenue and pass that off to the consumer. That is codifying the law of I'm paying for the internet. Yeah, you just deliver it. And to I, me. But the whole argument you gave yeah, was that law I'd be fine with, but that's not what this does. 
But they all, no, the whole I argument you gave with is for, you know, the privacy from like Google and whatever, you don't pay for it and you do, but we already are paying for this. They're just doing it on top to get extra money. No, that's not, that's not accurate. And the only way that in you and I, neither one of us are qualified to have that conversation. The amount of money made want- from this type of data is so insignificant. It's almost laughable. Now, are okay. there companies out there, ISPs that probably do attempt and sell it better than other ISPs? I'm then, sure. But this is not what allowed us to build out tens of billions of dollars worth of network towers and infrastructure. Then nobody will object to saying, hey, whatever money you were getting from the advertising revenue, just go ahead and pass it off onto the consumer. That should be a perfectly agreeable solution and to you everybody. You know what that, that cost would be? Like $5, you would pass it. Then, a bill then would you increase like five bucks then per go, person. Like then this is something law, we should do. Then I agree. I like law, your idea of the law. I like your change. Then write, write the law to reflect that. But I'm telling you, when you start putting regulatory bodies in front of what information can be exchanged and how that is a dangerous thing to do, and it is per and, and I would argue, and I guess we'll never know because we can't ask him, but I would argue it, this is not the kind of thing that Edward Snowden was fighting for. Edward Snowden was fighting for the, was fighting for the government and, and, and government intervention and government spying on American citizens and violating the Fourth Amendment rights. They use this the is, ISPs to accomplish. Not, yes, sure. Because they don't have not, to go and get the, they don't have to go and get the court orders. Warrant, sure. And this but type this of stuff is, allows it to happen perfectly. Right. Uh, but this is yeah. but you agree to this stuff in their terms of service when you sign up for your ISP. This is not anybody violating somebody's fourth amendment yes, right. Because we know everybody goes and reads their terms of service. No, That's nobody reads terms ISP. of service. That's yeah. how we got that, this problem to begin with. I can't believe we're talking. So okay. If, if it needs to be said because most people who aren't geeks like us, they go and they provide they buy internet and they ISP expect to have does internet. Not constitute an emergency on the ISP's part to then respond to your lack of privacy concerns. You should have addressed that at the time that you have signed the contract. And you better believe I did read my contract and you better believe there are parts in there that I struck out with the line, initialed, sent it back to my ISP rep and said, that's not going to work for me. And they were cool with it. But you have to take Because you were signing a business contract, not a It was a business contract, contract. But you know what? Here's the thing. I would have done the same thing if I would have found anything in my home contract I didn't like. And that one I ISP mean, choice would have told you if you were just a consumer, they would have laughed, I went to, had their tech go home went, and first went of to all, the next customer. First of all, I'll be but the first a business person to, customer. Yes. Hold on. Take care of so first of all, Midco, my ISP is fantastic. And I have absolute uh, uh, confidence in them. Had I had a concern about the, the, uh, the contract, if I would have sent that into my Midco rep, I it, it a personal, not business side, personal side, they would have addressed it. I guarantee it because I've had, there was little things like I wanted them to run a new line because I didn't want to deal with uh, crappy old lines and stuff like that. And they trenched up my yard and, and, and ran the line, did it all for free. So I, I have every confidence in my ISP. So I, I can't use mine as an example, but my, my point stands that if, if you don't like the terms of an agreement that you sign with the company, that's on you to negotiate with the company. And if and 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 so laws like this are not going to solve the problem; they're going to create more. And I guess time will tell if I'm right or not. But I'll bet you money down the road we are going to start having a, 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 a conversation, and the, the ISPs are going to do something worse uh, to go ahead and recapture that revenue or go ahead and recapture that data. And we're going to get to a point and go, well, now they're now they're really bad. It was you know better. Better before, where at least we knew what they were doing and how well, they were. Let's take it out of the U.S. perspective. What are your thoughts, Stuart, on this? Oh, I got a bunch of thoughts about this, um, but I'm in. I'm in a very different environment here uh, in yeah. the U.K. than you are in the U.S. Uh, it came as quite a shock to me to discover that 
half the people in the US have one choice of ISP or maybe two, and that's it. The UK is nothing like that. Secondly, um, we are currently, at least, living under the GDPR, from which no one has died. And, and it enforces approximately what Maine are trying to do here. I can see Noah's point, but as I say, the GDPR is in place here, and it has not led to the downfall of the Republic. Other things may lead to the downfall of the Republic, but not the GDPR. So <laughs> um, there is also something to think about is this. The point of government regulation is to affect public policy to effect change and one of the things that i think is reasonable is that regulation can sometimes run ahead of public opinion in an attempt to shape that opinion so if you look at things like the death penalty right um when it was banned in germany uh, 70 or so percent of people thought that was the wrong thing to do. And then 20 years or so later, the, the number of people who thought the death penalty was a good, was, should be brought back in had dropped to like 15 or 20 percent. It's possible for government to lead public opinion in what they consider to be a good direction. And largely, that's, in my opinion, part of what government's for. And so I think... What Maine are attempting to do here is not to enforce people's current views on uh, the privacy and uh, proper handling of their personal data, but attempting to shape public opinion so that people do think it is reasonable to demand that their personal data is protected and is not traded without their consent. And I think that public opinion is more concerned about this than you'd think uh 75 percent of i'd have to look up the exact numbers but um somewhere between 75 and 80 percent of people have some concerns about how their personal data is used at least 50 percent of people that was a gartner survey have have avoided or refused to do some relatively simple thing online like purchasing something because they're concerned about how their data will be used. They weren't happy with the company's approach to it. People are more aware of this. We, we tend to think in our technological world that we have an insight into this and then the vast mass of the public are blindly stumbling through, unaware of what can be done, or, yeah. or, or maybe that they, they've made a conscious decision to say, I'm prepared to pay with my privacy because I'm not prepared to pay with my money. And... Yeah, I agree. There's a kind of social contract that says that, but no one's done it explicitly. And maybe think about this the other way around. I, I have no uh, particular opinion on whether Maine have worded their law correctly, and I'm entirely prepared to buy the argument that it should be worded differently. But imagine if it said something along the lines of, instead of ISPs, you can't take this data without having someone explicitly agree to it. If it said, we will explicitly pay you for your data. So you have to send all your customers a letter. Mm -hmm. And the ones who say, yes, I want that, you then have to give them an amount of money. You have to, that's an explicit business transaction. It can't be hidden in the uh, point 31 of the terms of service. Yes, I'm sure there are a whole bunch of lawyers out there who are firmly of the opinion that they could write, we will insert a live rattlesnake into your rectum 
on every Monday <laughs> if we choose. And then if someone complains, they go, no, I was in the terms of service and you agreed to it. You're not allowed to do that kind of thing. Even if it would be technically legal, there is public policy benefit in not permitting people to do that kind of slightly misleading contract. Even if it looks like it would be legal, right? The actual law is not a game of no This to me seems like a similar thing. If you, um, as Noah says, you make this contract with between uh, uh, the contract between ISPs and customers, make it explicit about this. But I don't think it should be. Yeah, you can go ahead and use the data as long as you write down that you're doing it, because what will happen is it will be buried in point thirty-seven of a document no one reads. There should have to be an explicit choice, and this is why you make it opt-in, right? Yep. Um, the whole point of making something explicitly opt-in is that if someone doesn't know or doesn't understand or can't be bothered to read it, you're not allowed to exploit the fact that they did. You can only exploit people who've explicitly agreed to it. Now, what we've seen with GDPR, unfortunately, the GDPR is extremely explicit about you have to get people to opt-in. And what literally every site on earth has done, if you if you come to Europe, you'll discover this. I didn't realize this didn't happen to people in America, so you may not have seen this. No, but we basic- see it too. Oh, okay, cool. I basically, every doing. website pops up the thing saying, um, ac- accept or reject all, um, if you're lucky. If you are unlucky, it pops up a thing which says accept all. And then if you say, and then you have to find some tiny link that says reject. And then you have to go through and untick about a thousand checkboxes for all the different advertisers, right? But what the GDPR says, all of those boxes are not allowed, right? There should be um, a box which says to you, reject all of this. And then a tiny little link which says, yeah, okay, actually, I want the adverts and the advert personalization. But there isn't. It's very clear that it needs to be opt-in. And presenting someone with one easy choice, which is the thing you want, and a bunch of hard, awkward-to-find choices, which is the opt-in, is not opting in. The problem is that there hasn't been enough enforcement of it yet. I would like to see um, the EU courts pick some reasonably high-profile target and make an example of them so everyone stops doing this. But I'm not sure I'd recommend that because poor Encourage Les Ultra didn't work the first time we tried it and it shouldn't work now. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's the thing. I think what jurisdictions who are bringing in privacy laws are attempting to do is to shape the public discourse. At the moment, yes, I agree with you. Most people are kind of, eh, I'm not sure. I, I, they are vaguely disquieted and concerned about it, but do not necessarily have a firm opinion. But largely that's because they don't have any choice, and that's because they're presented with a binary option. You either put up with this, whether that's because you've only got one ISP to go to or because every uh, male provider you might go to with a small number of exceptions will do this to you or every website will capture your data and sell it to people or whatever you don't really have a choice other than opting out of the internet which you should not have to do we are in a position now where you someone growing up today my daughter for example or um, any of your kids anyone in younger generation than us will never know what it is to be lost They won't know the experience of being lost. We are currently on different continents in different cities 
talking to one another and the whole of the internet. These things are superpowers. They're amazing. You shouldn't have to give them up. <laughs> and you shouldn't be forced into a essentially a false dilemma between either let companies do the live rattlesnake thing or opt out of superpowers, and that's your only choice. There right. are, for example, ways of collecting data which is useful but doesn't individually target or allow the targeting of a specific user. So Apple have been doing work with differential privacy, and that's one good example. There's, um, what's it called? Um, thing from the 60s, uh, something response approach. I, well, I forget the name of it. Um, and the idea here is that you collect data in a way that it's still useful in aggregate. So if you want to know what percentage of my users are using more than five programs at once, what percentage of my users are doing this or that or the other. You, you can still establish those, those demographic boundaries. So you can learn everything you need, to do about, you need to know to make business decisions about your customer base. But you can't learn the correct answer for any one individual user. It was invented in the 60s. So if you were a sociologist, for example, and you wanted to do a study on whether people smoke marijuana, if you just invited people in and said, could you please write down on this piece of paper whether you smoked marijuana or not? Obviously, everyone said, absolutely, no, I haven't, because it was illegal. <laughs> but then you can't do the study. So what you do is you tell people, I would like you to think of what your actual answer is and then flip a coin secretly so only you can see the coin that's flipped. If it comes up heads, then the answer you write down on the piece of paper is the truth, whatever that is. Yes, I have or no, I haven't, whatever the truth is. If the coin comes up tails, write the opposite of the truth so if you have right you haven't if you haven't right you have and then what happens is all the answers balance out all the truths and lies um balance out over time and you still get roughly correct answers for what percentage of the population had smoked marijuana for example at that time looking go okay it's 15 percent or 20 percent or 30 percent or whatever the numbers were so those numbers were correct in the survey, but any one individual person's answer was not incriminating. If it turned out the people running the survey were secretly in league with the police and planned to arrest everyone who wrote yes on their bit of paper, when the police kick the door in, you hold up a bit of paper and say, oh, I flipped tails, so I lied. So you are not individually incriminated. Any one individual person's data cannot be used to target them specifically but you do get the data properties in aggregate. And that's a relatively trivial example from 50 years ago, but things like differential privacy are much more mathematically robust and mathematically sound. And so there are approaches for this and companies are working on it and that's good. And that's the sort of thing I'd like to see. Uh, if you say to YSPs, you can't sell this and they need the revenue, which I I'm prepared to believe what now it says. I don't, I don't know anything about that field. Then what they need to do is find creative ways around that. And at the moment, if you say, okay, companies, you, go, you currently get paid for this, we would like you to use the fact that your companies can innovate better than the federal government can, <laughs> which I think we'd all roughly be prepared to buy. I mean, I trust government more yeah. than I suspect most of you do, but... Yeah, they're not the great. They're not the best of thinking up new ideas. Right. If you say, "Okay, companies, we want you to come up with ways to 
still do all the things you want to do for learning about users, um, for being able to target advertising and so on, but you're not allowed to do it by just collecting a massive data warehouse of everything known about every person ever on earth. I don't think they go, oh, well, we can't. It's just impossible. The whole field of advertising is useless. We'll give up. They'll come up with clever ways to do it if they've got a reason to do so. But there is no reason to do so currently because doing it the way they're doing is easier. So the goal of public policy, in my opinion, is to divert their attention or push their attention in ways which are better for the public as a whole, even if they're not better for A, any individual person, B, any individual company. But I can see how reasonable people would disagree with on this, which is why I don't have an opinion on this particular law. That was an awesome opinion, I think, overall. I, I enjoyed that. And it takes a different perspective than what we're used to here in just the U.S. of what we're arguing, right? So I appreciate I'm that. Sorry, sorry, I went on a bit longer than I intended to. <laughs> no, I, I, was, I was zoned in the whole time because yeah, I, I thought you made some really good points there. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's actually kind of interesting because this episode, we started off with some a little bit of a heated debate regarding GNOME and uh, extensions and then flat packs versus snaps. And then we all, they just kind of divulged into what have you pol- done? Legal you turned us into bad voltage, and- Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get I to do. our software spotlight. Cause I think we could all agree on these. So in the spotlight this week, we have shell check. Shell check is a really interesting thing because it is a static analysis tool for shell scripts. One, I really like the name shell check. That's just fantastic. And two, the, the what it does is that it allows you to basically do like run s- scans across your syntax for your various different uh, scripts that you write. And it gives you like error messages that are more usable rather than the whole cryptic error message that normally comes when you run a shell script. And it just gives you like this random, you know, seg fault or something or something like that. It gives you semantic problem identifiers. And then it gives you the output of like, here's how you could make this a better script. And prior to this, I had not heard of any kind of script like processing stuff, stuff like this. I've, I've seen like, you know, all the different various languages, but not a shell script like this. So this is a really cool uh, piece of software. And if you write a lot of shell scripts, like I do definitely check this out because it will help you make, write better code. Nice. Our tip and trick this week is the pseudo timeout period. How long, how many times have you opened up a terminal, typed pseudo something or other, walked away, come back, go to do it again and realized, why am I entering my pseudo password again? I just entered that. Well, there's something that controls the pseudo timeout period, and you may want to edit it. This week's tip and trick will show you how to do just that. Open up a terminal, type sudo viz sudo. There'll be a line that states default environment reset. Add timestamp underscore timeout equals X. Of course, you're going to replace X with things like five for five minutes or 15 for 15 minutes. If you want it to always ask, change it to zero. So I see a lot of people who want to remove that functionality all the time or people who want to extend that functionality. Obviously, people who want to remove it all the time on the more security conscious side saying, hey, you need to enter it every time. People who want more time or more along the lines of, I just need to get this thing done. So both options, they're available for you. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. If you want a behind-the-scenes pass into the making of the show and an opportunity to chat with us live, consider becoming a patron. Our patrons help keep the show going and get perks like access to the live recordings and unedited versions of the show, 
which especially this week you're going to want to see because there's probably a lot of content that will not make it into the main show because we had some amazing guests this week. So the best part is you can join for just a few dollars on Patreon or sponsors. Destination Linux Network also has a great way for you to become a part of the community by going to destinationlinux.network and joining our forums. Discuss the shows, the network, along with listeners from all around the world, all in one place. If you're looking for more live chat sessions, you can join our interactive Telegram group, where we have over 1,300 members in the community interacting with one another and sharing their passion for Linux. To learn more, head over to destinationlinux.network. And we love hearing from you, so please get back to us, provide your feedback, ask those burning questions, especially if you're mad at Stuart and you want to get a question over to him, send it to comments at destinationlinux.org and we'll make sure to get it over to him or include your comments on the shows. Also, don't forget to check out the DLN store, pick up some swag from across the network of podcasts. Stuart himself has said that when he got Destination Linux gear, it changed his life. He never actually said that. I just made that up. (laughs) He could say. Totally. <laughs> and if you want some more content, the fun doesn't stop here. We also have our own channels you can check out. You can go to Ryan's, check out Ryan's channel at youtube.com slash dosgeek, where he'll fill your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can find my Am content. No. You can find my content at tuxdigital.com, where you'll find the legal, weekly Linux news podcast this week in Linux that I do, and other Linux-related content. Tuxbystool.com. And you can also find Noah's content at asknoahshow.com, where he does a weekly talk radio show. At 6 p.m. on Central Tuesdays, where he answers your Linux and tech questions. And also be sure to check out the rest of the shows on the Destination Linux Network, like Hardware Addicts, Linux for Everyone, and DLN Extend Podcasts. Speaking of which, the DLN Extend uh, guys are going to have a, just so much content from this episode to cover. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait. So anyway, so yeah, be, be sure to check those out by going to destinationlinux.network. Everybody have a great week, and remember that the journey is itself is just as important as the destination. Have a good week. Thanks, everyone.